Every year around now, as the Christmas season comes to a close, I always ask myself two questions. First, did I give any really good gifts this Christmas season? And second, did I receive any really good gifts this Christmas? Now, a lot of people deride gift giving as a distraction from the true Christmas spirit, which is celebrating the nativity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's true that an excessive focus on giving and receiving material things per se can be an unwelcome distraction from the genuinely Christian celebration of Christmas. But done properly, gift giving is an art, and it can be a rich symbol of the gift of Christ that we celebrate in Christmas. Think back to a time, whether it was in the Christmas season or not, when someone gave you a really good gift. What was it that made that gift so special? I think that there are three ways that a gift can be particularly special for you. First, when it's something that you really, really wanted. Second, when it's something that perhaps you didn't know that you wanted, but when you receive it, you love it because it suits you particularly well. And third, when you recognize that the person made an extra special effort in order to obtain it for you. A gift that falls into one of these three categories is special because it says to the recipient, I see you. I really know who you are. Because ultimately, a gift is only meaningful to us if it corresponds to some sense that we have of ourselves or of our relationship to the giver. For example, a person who is in complete despair over their sins cannot receive the gift of God's forgiveness because they have totally lost hope in themselves and see no reason why God should love them. By contrast, a person who is convinced of their own righteousness also cannot receive forgiveness because in their minds they have done nothing to warrant condemnation. It's a basic principle of Thomistic philosophy. Quid quid recipitor ad modem recipientis recipitor. Whatever is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. In the gospel reading, the magi from the east give gifts to the infant Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These aren't just random gifts, nor are they merely signs of luxury meant to show show royal generosity. Instead, Matthew itemizes the gifts because they are meant to show us that the Magi really see Jesus for who he actually is. Each gift represents an aspect of Christ's mission for which he was sent into our world. In the Old Testament, there were three offices to which a man could be anointed, priest, prophet, and king. Each played an important but distinct role in ministering to the people of God according to the designs of the Old Covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament archetypes, priest, prophet, and king. This is why he is called the Christ, which means the anointed one. Gold, firstly, is symbolic of the office of king. Christ is our true king, because he was with the Father from the beginning. He is the author of all law, human and divine. He is the one person to whom all who are born into this world owe obedience. 
He is meant to reign in our hearts above all earthly authorities. The gift of frankincense signals Christ's priestly office. A priest is one who sanctifies people by offering them blessings and directing their sacrifices to God. An Old Testament priest, in effect, represents the people before God. Christ takes this one step further as the new high priest. He makes the ultimate sacrifice by offering himself as the victim in atonement for the sins of his people. Finally, Christ was given the gift of myrrh. Especially compared to the other two gifts, this would have been an odd thing to give to a newborn child because myrrh is associated with death. In fact, later in the gospel, we see it appear twice in this connection. First, on the cross, Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, which he refuses. Myrrh had a narcotic quality and was often given to those who were crucified in order to numb them to the excruciating pain. Of course, Jesus refuses this because he was offering up all of his sufferings on the cross to his Father. And then second, after Jesus' body is taken down from the cross, Joseph of Arimathea uses aloes and myrrh to prepare Jesus' body for burial. Myrrh's association with death signifies Christ's prophetic office. Like the Old Testament prophets, but in an even greater way, he was sent to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, calling Israel to the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Covenant, which was himself. So Christ was both the prophet as well as the prophecy. But like the prophets before him, Christ and his message would be rejected by many. The fate of the prophet is always death at the hands of the people, whether that's literal or metaphorical. As Christ said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. For Christ, his fate was indeed literal death, death in the worst way imaginable, death upon a cross. In the gospel, before the Magi found Jesus, they first encountered King Herod, as well as the chief priests of Israel. They probably also encountered many prophets or would-be prophets in Jerusalem as well. But none of these received the gifts that the wise men carried with them because the Magi could see that they were no longer the anointed ones. Their star was fading. The rising star was over Bethlehem, where there was a new king, a new priest, and a new prophet, one who would come to redeem the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.